Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 3 of Revelation, where we are beginning the letter to the Church of Laodicea, also known as the Lukewarm Church. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. We begin to tackle the last of the seven churches that Jesus is writing to, and this is the difficult one because I think that as we live in our world today, this is a, a church that we really see um, evidence of, and and I would. Uh, caution us not to just look at churches, but remember, we are the church. And I think that if we're very honest, and we'll talk more about this as we get into it, but if we're very honest, uh, there's a little bit of this church in our hearts at times. And, and I think that there's a strong warning from Jesus to this church. Let's pick up this morning in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked." I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. May I read that again? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. This is going to be, no matter how we tackle this, is going to be a difficult passage. Because there is so much in this that Jesus is about to say. And I don't mean difficult in terms of length. I mean difficult in the challenges it presents to us. I have to tell you, even as I was preparing this, I just found myself repeatedly saying, Lord, what's, what's the Laodicea in me? You know, what's the Laodicea that's still in me, that, that neither hot nor cold, that, that in-between state that Jesus is about to address with these guys? May we be forgiven of that. But as we deal with that, let's keep in the back of our minds that Jesus is rebuking this church because he loves these people. And he wants them to know his love for them and that he cares for them as a father cares for his child. But he cannot let go on what's going on in this church any longer. This is, as I mentioned, the, 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 the last of the seven letters that Jesus is writing, and he's writing it to the church of the Laodiceans. You'll note that he says that, and I'm going to point out why in just a moment because it's fairly significant, the wording there. But let's first talk about the city of Laodicea itself. Laodicea was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, the church we looked at last time in the city that we looked at last time. No, that doesn't put them in Delaware. 
okay, but in this area of Asia Minor where it was located. And they were along a road that was considered the most important of all in all of Asia. Uh, It sat along a major trade route that began at the coast at Ephesus, and it ran directly through this city along a route that led to what was known as the Syrian Gate. And that strategic location made Laodicea one of the great commercial centers of the ancient world in its day. Secondly, its chief industry was the production of wool cloth. Uh, The Laodiceans and others near the city raised sheep that were famous for their soft velvet, really uh, violet black, violet colored black, almost a a tint of purple in this black coat that these sheep had, and it was a glossy wool. And the city used this wool to produce uh, an outer garment. It was really kind of a cheap outer garment, but it looked really good. You know, it's like one of those things when you go to the store and in the shops that are like the cut down versions and they, they make them all shiny and stuff. So you think, oh, I got something that looks really expensive. And that's exactly what they were producing, but it was popular. And one of the things that they produced was a tunic called the Trimitia. And, and the Laodiceans took great pride in what they were producing in these garments. They saw this as their identity in everything that they were doing. Third, besides the industry, Laodicea was also famous as a great banking and financial center. It was considered to be one of the wealthiest cities in the known world of the time. Laodicea was so wealthy that after being devastated by an earthquake in 61 AD, its citizens were so rich, they were so proud that they refused the Roman Empire's offer to provide money to rebuild their city. What they said instead is that we can do it out of our own resources. That's going to become significant. All of these things that I'm sharing with you are going to become significant to Jesus's message and the problems that were occurring in this church. Fourth, Laodicea was also well known as a great medical center of its day, like Pergamos. If you remember, Pergamos had some things going on there that had to do with uh, these these centers that they set up of worship of this god called Asclepios, and and he was the pagan god of healing. And and they, like Pergamos, had had established a medical school that was connected to the temple that they built to this pagan god in their worship of him. And the medical school was especially famous for these medicinal ointments that they produced for the ears and for the eyes. In particular, the eye salve that they produced was a powder called tephra phrygia. It was a powder that they exported all over the world in in the form of a solidified tablet, which could then be crushed down and and applied to the eyes. And, And supposedly, this power would strengthen the eyes and reverse the effects of blindness and and other eye associated issues. I could use some of this right now at my age. My eyes are getting worse by the day. But you know what? They would export this all over because of what they viewed as the medicinal properties to it. And fifth, Laodicea was also known for having one of the largest populations of Jews in that part of the world. It's estimated that there were about 7,500 Jews living in the city, and they wielded great power, which was unusual because oftentimes the Jews in these communities were second-hand citizens, second-class citizens. Here they did not. They had actually, they were in positions of power and authority within the city. And sixth, even though Laodicea was a strong city in terms of the power associated with their wealth, she was also a very vulnerable city. You know, at the time when when Laodicea was built, it was built as a fortress city, but it had one serious weakness, one serious flaw when it was built. It didn't have a ready and reliable source of water. 
it, all of its water had to come through an underground aqueduct from springs that were located almost six miles away from them. And that wasn't a good situation for this fortress city because it meant that they couldn't effectively withstand a prolonged siege. They, all the, the sieging armies had to do was block the water source where it was originating from and, and cut off the water. And, and so Laodicea became an open city over time because it didn't make sense for it to be a fortress based on this, became an open city, and, and her only chance to existence was to seek compromise in order to maintain her peace and wealth. And so she would compromise in order to maintain those things. Again, another significant connection to what's happening here in this church. But let's talk about the church for a minute. The church of the Laodiceans, uh, the Laodiceans, as Jesus phrased it, was a was a church that was located, and, and it, in Laodicea, it had serious spiritual problems going on. It was only one of two churches to whom Jesus had nothing good to say. There isn't one good thing he's going to say to these guys. And, and the problems that he's going to bring up are going to correlate to the things that we just noted about the city itself. And this isn't the first time that we come in Scripture to any kind of a hint or a reference that there were problems in Laodicea because Paul, in writing in Colossians 2.1 and Colossians 4.16, makes mention of the Laodiceans, makes mention of passing the letter he gave to them, that they should read it too. And if you'll recall that there were problems that were going on in Colossae in regard to their theology, their beliefs, the way they were practicing things. And so the hint was that Laodicea was also having problems already then. But even still, what we're going to find here is that they had much worse problems going on in Laodicea than than were really going on in Colossae. And yet as we read this message, we cannot forget that this is a congregation of believers that Jesus is addressing. This is a congregation of his. This is a body. They're still his body. He has not removed them from, from his presence. He hasn't removed their lampstand in any way. He hasn't expelled them from his body. Although there appears to be a lot of warnings that such expulsion's about to happen if they don't make some changes. And although there's likely a large contingent of people in this congregation who are not believers, this by and large is a congregation of true believers who've gotten themselves away and off track spiritually. And Jesus is addressing that. We're going to find that there are a lot of negative things that we see reflected in many circles of Christianity today that, that are tied to the, the trends that we see going on in our culture today and in the church today that, that we see reflected in the church of Laodicea, or better stated, we, we see the church in, of the Laodiceans being reflected in a lot of churches today and in a lot of church movements today and Christian movements but we got to be careful not to judge all these people and all of these movements as being unsaved, which is our natural reaction, right? We see something that we just see as errant or wrong, and we immediately put them into the unsaved category. Well, they may be, but not necessarily, and we must be very careful with that. This letter is going to show us that there can be congregations that can be way off base in terms of their attitudes and, and even in some degree their theology and their behaviors, and yet they are still loved by Jesus. And he, he, he's grieved by what they're doing. He doesn't want to see what they're doing. He's sending stern warnings about what they're doing. But at the end of the day, he still sees them as his and he grieves for them like a father grieves for an errant child. And so let's not forget that as we talk about those things. And we will be talking about things in Christianity today, especially in light of what's said in this book about this church. One last thing to note. Unlike the other churches that, that Jesus has addressed, this is the only message where he doesn't say to the angel of the church in 
He doesn't use that phrase here. He instead says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, not the church in Laodicea, but the church of the Laodiceans. Now, some believe that that's just a translational, you know, a translational inaccuracy, that it just didn't get translated correctly, that it should have been in. But, but most who've studied this are saying, no, the language is clear. This is a clear word choice that Jesus is using here. And, and, and they disagree with those arguments against that. And they argue that these, these manuscripts seem to say just the way it's being worded as you and I are reading in our Bible, to the church of the Laodiceans. And these scholars, these Bible, and I'm, I'm among them, I'm not a scholar, but as a Bible teacher, I'm in that group that looks at this and says, I think this is a very deliberate word choice that Jesus is using here to make a point. And what is that point? Very simply this, the word choice is likely meant to be reflective of the nature of the problems Jesus will be dealing with here in this church, that it's the core problem. It's reflecting the core problem. You see, the name Laodicea is formed by two Greek words, laos, from the same word we derive our English word laity or people, and they say, which is decision or rule, from which we would derive the word decision or rule. And quite literally, then, this name means decided by, directed by, ruled by who? The people, by the people. Now, name's going to turn out to be an accurate reflection of what's going on in this church. This is a church controlled by the people, not by the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about church government. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about congregational. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about something completely different here. I'm saying this is a church where the people were in control in a very negative way and were directing the things that were taking place here. And they're more focused on worshiping themselves than they are on worshiping Jesus. And that's a problem. And so with that in mind, it's really appropriate that Jesus would use this term, right? To the church of the Laodiceans. This isn't a church that's reflecting me. This isn't a church that's controlled by me. This is a church of the Laodiceans. And he's making that point to them. I believe there are a lot of churches today, and and please forgive me because I know sometimes I can rant on about the state of Christianity today. I I told you when I first started ministry, you know, being that young pastor and and you see everything around you as heresy and you spend more time talking about specific people and specific churches, I've really moved away from doing that when I can. There are times when I call somebody out specifically because it's so dangerous to the flock. But by and large, I don't do that anymore. But at the same time, we still talk in, in generic concepts about what we see going on. And I I do think you relate to that. You do see this. Some of you are here in this fellowship because you've seen that in the places you've been and were tired of it and moved on. And that's, we understand that. But but at the same time, it's really going to come up in this book. Because I think more than any other, this particular church characterizes so much of what we see going on in Christianity today. Then there are so many churches today that are being ruled and directed by the people rather than by the Lord. And again, I'm not talking about leadership style or leadership things. That's a a totally issue altogether. But I'm talking about churches where everything is about the people themselves rather than about God. Congregations where what they want matters more to them than what God might want. Uh, Congregations that have pushed away God's word and replaced it with their own spiritual ideas and their own spiritual practices. Congregations where God really isn't the center of things, but people where, where people are the center of things. Churches that have pushed Jesus out of the door in order to accommodate themselves. There isn't room for both, and they decide the one that needs to go is Jesus. And so that's happening. 
And any church where the people are the center of things is a church where God is not in control. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You're the center of things from Jesus' perspective. He, he died for you, and we gather in his name, and we're his body because of what he's done. You're the center of everything for him. He loves you guys more than anything, and, and he wants you to know that. And when you gather, he's so pleased that you're here to, to, and, and that you're his. But the truth is, when we gather, it's not to be about us. We can let him do what he wants with us. But when it comes to us, we must always make him the center. And when we fail to do that, then we've replaced him with ourselves. We've set ourselves up on the throne and made ourselves the God and the head of the body. When in reality, Jesus wants to be the head of a body, you see. When our wants, our needs, our ideas, our perspectives of things become the focus, we push God out because you can't worship yourself and God at the same time. You know, Jesus said it so well when he said, you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't do it. I know he's talking about money. That's going to play a role here in this church. You know, but you can't. And, and what is mammon? The worship of mammon is the worship of self. Right? I understand it was a false god of the day, but it also it was a material thing. And, and you can't worship those things and still be worshiping Jesus. He, he won't allow that. He is jealous for you. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for our hearts and our worship. And he wants it to be to him alone, you see. But this is what a lot of people are doing. And as we're about to discover, it's what the church of the Laodiceans was doing. Like the name implies, this is a church where the people are deciding, where the people are directing, and where the people are ruling. And Jesus has been left standing outside, just knocking on the door, trying to get back in. And as a result, Jesus deals with the problem directly by addressing it to those who are in control. By phrasing his opening remarks this way, Jesus is giving this church an immediate wake-up call to the very hard attitude that's creating the problems that they're having in this church spiritually, revealing to them that the sin, that the center of it all is the sin of self-worship. The sin of self-worship rather than God-worship. And Jesus is going to deal with that with them and with us where it's necessary. But look at verse 14 again. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus now gives this, as he's been doing, he gives this description of himself that's going to be relevant to the problems that he's addressing here in this church. And this threefold description of himself is, is almost like a counter to the things that are going on there. But he refers to himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and as the beginning of the creation of God. So three things, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now let's talk about the implications of these things. First of all, the Amen. That's kind of a strange term to apply to himself, isn't it? I am the Amen. Well, it is unless you understand what Amen implies. You see, the word that we relate to it as it means so be it. So be it, or, or let it be so. When you hear amen, that's what we're saying. Amen, let it be so, Lord. Let it be so, let it be so, so be it. It gives a sense, really, of finality, doesn't it? That's why we say amen at the end of things. We even say it when we're in conversations with people over something they say we like. Amen, I agree with that. It's like a period on the end of the sentence. Sometimes it's an exclamation point on the end of the sentence. But it brings finality. And, and, and 
in regard to Jesus' application and his characterization to himself, we have to, to, to look at the use of this term in, in other places in Scripture. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as the Amen. Even though he didn't use that specific word, he still refers to himself with the same kind of context as Jesus is using it here. In Isaiah 65 and verse 16, it says this. Isaiah 65 and verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Note that, God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Twice he says this. Because of the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Now that term, God of truth, in Hebrew is literally translated as God of Amen. God of Amen. God of Amen. Amen is the word that, that is put at the end of a solemn statement in order to guarantee its truth. Thus to be the God of Amen is meant to imply that God can be utterly relied upon to be true and faithful to all that he says and does. Everything that he says to us can have that Amen associated with it because he's true to it, because he alone is truth. And Jesus is saying that he, as the amen, it literally means that Jesus is the one whose word and whose promises can also be counted on. He's beyond all doubt in everything that he says and does. Note also, we can learn much from Jesus' use of this term elsewhere in Scripture because he clearly applies it to himself in other places. Take, for example, what he said as recorded in John chapter 1 and verse 51. John 1 and verse 51. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Most assuredly, when he says, and he said to him, most assuredly, that word most assuredly literally translate as verily, verily. And in other translations as amen, amen. He said to him, amen, amen, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. Jesus uses the same amen reference in regard to himself in John chapter 3 and verse 3 and in John chapter 3 and verse 5 and in John chapter 3 and verse 11. And again, Jesus is using this expression as a solemn statement designed to add finality to and, and to guarantee, I like that, to guarantee the truth of what it is that he's saying. You can bank on it. You can count on what I'm saying to you as absolute truth. So in light of these passages, by applying this descriptive title to himself here in Revelation, in essence, Jesus is, is, is declaring a number of things about himself to the Laodicean believers. Number one, he's declaring his sovereignty. I'm over everything. I can make these statements. He's declaring the, 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 the certainty of the fulfillment of all of his word and the promises of his word. And he's also declaring that when he speaks, his word is final. It's absolute. And it will always always be worked out. Now, that's a fitting and important description when you think about the problems he's going to be dealing with here in Laodicea. This is a church that Jesus says will indicate that it's lost sight of and in many ways has failed to recognize the sovereignty of God over their lives and in their body as a church. This is a church that Jesus will indicate lives in the spiritual gray. You know what I mean by the spiritual gray? That hazy area in between where you're kind of threading the needle and getting away with things. They're living in the gray with no certainty about anything, no absolute spirituality. With this church, it is all about compromise. And compromise contrasted with what Jesus says he is. Man, that's a stark contrast. 
And this is a church that Jesus will indicate is failing to understand and recognize the final authority of God's word and will over their lives and over their church as his body, you see. Jesus is reminding them right up front at the start of this letter of who he is so that they're going to see themselves and where they, they're at spiritually in light of who he is. He wants them to see how far off track they've gotten themselves so that they'll repent and get back to where they need to be as his body. I pray that you and I will see and fully relate to Jesus as the amen. I do. Because we live in a world right now that's full of gray. We live in a midst of a spiritual culture that is full of gray, no absolutes. You know, when I taught the book of Revelation the first time, I, at one point I stopped and I started talking about this whole concept of, of what's going on where there is no absolute truth anymore, where, where it's all about, you know, uh, who can say and, and, and how illogical that really is when you think about it. But who can really say kind of attitude that exists out there? But sadly, it's crept into the church itself. And it's becoming to the point where, where we almost are afraid to take a firm stand on a particular issue of Scripture because somehow we might be wrong on that. And who can really interpret? I mean, it's almost disheartening to me anymore when I hear Christians. I mean, I used to hear people say things like this who are unsaved, but even Christians are now saying, well, I, you know, there's many ways to interpret the Bible. Really? Really, there are? Well, I understand that some words, there can be various aspects that we need to look at in that. But you know what? The only time you're going to run into a problem when there's many ways to translate the Bible is when you're pulling it out of context. And you're taking standalone verse out of its complete context. Because when you study the Bible in its context, when you look at it to the original languages, and don't let that frighten you when I say that. Don't let that frighten you as though I can't understand the Bible if I don't know the original languages. Trust me, there are so many resources out there for you to come to know the original languages without ever becoming a Hebrew or a Greek scholar. There's lots of things that are available. Blue Letter Bible is terrific. If you guys don't have that on your computer, may I suggest you bring it down? It's free. It's called Blue Letter Bible. You bring it down. You can put any verse, any word. It will pull that up for you. You can look at the context. You can look at the whole thing. You can look at the different meanings of the word in the Greek. You can look at the Hebrew. You can look at all these things. There are so many resources available to us. But what, what, what that statement of there's so many ways to interpret comes from is people, number one, who are not in the Word of God. It always comes out of the mouth of people who are not studying their Bibles. That's just truth. And of course, that's going to be their excuse. Well, I don't study my Bible because there's so many ways. Who can really say? Well, you know what? Maybe if you read your Bible a few times, you might be surprised at what you can say, you know? But but the spiritual gray has crept in. And, and we need to be very careful with this in this world in which we live. And, and I pray that, that we're going to heed what Jesus is saying here in these same three important ways. I pray that we would always, in all things, recognize his sovereignty and his authority over our lives individually and corporately as his people. I pray that we will always recognize that. Not trying to usurp any of it by, by trying to put ourselves on the throne of our lives and our church, which rightly belongs to him, and, and trying to control that ourselves. Th this is what's supposed to happen when we place our faith in Christ. We're to yield the throne of our lives fully to him. And, and I'm just telling you, as a church where God's people have fully yielded their lives to him, it's going to be a church that's fully yielded to him. You see? When you see this dysfunction in a church, it's because it's filled with people who haven't yielded their lives to Christ. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.